It's good to be here this evening. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, thank you for giving Calvary Baptist Church 60 years of your redeeming grace in beautiful Yucca Valley. Sustain this local church yet, Lord, for another 60 more years or so with your saving grace with your sustaining grace. Grant continued effectiveness to the ministries here, the supreme ministry of the word, the very vital ministry of prayer, the purposeful ministry of evangelism, and the ministry of the works of mercy in this community, that men may see their good works and glorify you, our Father, which is in heaven. Fill them with your Holy Spirit so that they may be bold to proclaim your truth. Holy Spirit of God, strengthen their arms to continue to uphold your eternal word as they are the pillar and the ground of the truth here in this community. Gird up the loins of their minds so that they are ever ready for any and all godly action. May I be a help tonight to your people here, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Pastor Casey's invitation for me to preach tonight took place nearly six months ago. And so I prayed to the Lord several times what He would have me to preach and speak on tonight. I had prepared a brief message about what the Lord taught me in the year 2022 when my wife underwent a heart transplant. Our lives, as it were, hung upon a thread However, I realized that uh, this week is about the voices of the past ministers of Yucca Valley, and so I decided to speak from one of the last passages I preached from when I was last here as your associate pastor. Best job I ever had. Any problem I ever saw, I deflected to the senior pastor. You know how that goes. I miss being the assistant pastor. Joking aside, however, I thoroughly enjoyed the some 300 sermons or so that were done by Pastor Casey here during our time here. And I have taught my family that that's the kind of preaching I want my family to be under. That's the kind of preaching I want me to be under. And so I really appreciated and I still appreciate Pastor Casey for preaching the Word of God here. And so it's truly an honor for me to be here sharing this pulpit, and I praise the Lord for it. As I mentioned, 2 Chronicles 20 is one of the last passages I preached from when I was your associate pastor here. You may say, I don't remember that. That's okay, because I vaguely remember what I preached from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 
the last time I was here. At any rate, Second Chronicles 20 is perhaps one of the most beautiful passages about God's attributes, about God's characteristics, about what the biblical God is really like. So let me give you a brief context here and then give you some principles that will help you, edify you, and encourage you. You know that Israel was broken up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is comprised of the ten tribes of Israel, and so they retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom is comprised of two tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and therefore maintained the name of Judah. And all of the kings in Israel were bad. The kings of Judah in the south, some were bad, some were good. Jehoshaphat, for the most part, was a good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. You'll find here that he appointed good judges. He charged them, Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in judgment. He even chose Levites and priests to be judges in the capital city of Jerusalem. That's like appointing associate pastors and senior pastors as judges in the land. Again, King Jehoshaphat charged them, Thus shall ye do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a perfect heart. Let me ask you a question. Since he was a good king, everything went fine and dandy with his kingdom, right? No, it did not. There was an impending invasion of the massive enemy army. Moab from the east, modern-day Jordan, descendants of Esau, Ammon, from the northeast, modern-day Syria, descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. They're all cousins, right? But Moab and Ammon had amassed their massive armies together, assembled themselves near the Dead Sea, and staged to attack and decimate Judah. I want us to begin reading in verse number 3 of Second Chronicles chapter 20. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before, their, before the new court. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? 
and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever. And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know what we to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. I've entitled this message, Our Eyes Are Upon You, Lord. Our Eyes Are Upon You, Lord. There are five reasons here why their eyes were upon the Lord. First, because they realized that the land they inherited and inhabited now was God's possession. The land that they inherited and now inhabiting was God's possession. We find that in verse number 11. God brought them there. God chose them to go there. God gave them the land. It might have taken them a long time to get there. But their journey through the wilderness with Moses was definitely undergirded by the fact that it was God who gave them that possession. Let's look at Psalm 83. Let's take a look at a national lament in which the psalmist prays for the Lord's intervention against the many, many enemies of Judah. You'll notice that the psalmist here prays that the enemies of the Lord's people may be shamed and that they will instead seek the name of the Lord. There's kind of like an evangelistic theme uh, to the lament here, that the enemies of God would seek the name of the Lord. That is an amazing, amazing thing. Psalm 83, look at verse 1. Keep not silent, keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people, and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab 
as I said earlier, modern-day Jordan, and the Hagarenes, Gebal, and Ammon, modern-day Syria, and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Jump down to verse 12. Who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. Oh my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. So persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah there understood that God gave them the possession. And that was why their eyes were upon the Lord. There's a lesson for the church of Jesus Christ tonight, and it is simply this. You understand that you've been given an inheritance from the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Among many other inheritances, a new heaven and a new earth await you, Christian. And therefore, no matter what atrocity or calamity or any tumult, any tribulation, any trial, any trouble that you are facing with, you remain faithful where God has placed you. You remain faithful like King Jehoshaphat did and the, and the people of Judah. They remained faithful steady, and faithful. And your part is to remain faithful here in beautiful Yucca Valley. Secondly, why were their eyes upon the Lord? Because they were reminded of God's goodness. We find that in verse 10 of our text tonight. It was the goodness of the Lord that He did not allow Israel to invade their cousins, Moab and Ammon, when they came out of the land of Egypt. Let us briefly recall the historical event mentioned here. And for that, let's look at Deuteronomy real fast. Deuteronomy chapter 2. We may say God is good. God is fair. God is just. In fact, at our church in Riverside, we have used this passage in Second Chronicles chapter 20 
to extract some of the well-known characteristics of the biblical God. Those statements that Jehoshaphat said, there are presupposed in them some of God's attributes. And, and you know this, God's love for His people. It is presupposed, it's assumed there when he is praying to God, will you not do this? Will you not judge? It is presupposed that God loves them. God loves his people. And yet he has justice towards the enemies of his people. For example, when he prayed, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? That obviously assumes God's justice. Also assumed in that statement is the fact that God is good to His people. God is good to whomever He wanted to show goodness. And in this case, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God chose to grant goodness to the descendants of Esau as well as to the descendants of Ammon. Look at verses 4. And 5 of Deuteronomy 2, Command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a foot breadth. Because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Go down to verse 19. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, not, nor meddle with them. For I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession." It was the goodness of the Lord that compelled them to turn their eyes upon the Lord. But now Esau and Ammon had a lust for more land. They wanted to eradicate the people of Judah. And so what did Judah do? They looked to the Lord. Lord, we are your people. You have been good to us in the past And just a quick application here, and it is very simple. God has been good to you. God has been good to me. And so in times of tumult, we recall God's goodness and turn our eyes upon the Lord. Thirdly, why did they look upon the Lord? Well, because they were aware of God's presence. Look at verses 8 and 9 in our text, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. They were aware of God's presence. Verses 8 and 9 says, And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, Or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, 
then thou wilt help hear and help. This is amazing. I want us to look at verse 6 real, real fast because I want you to see something beautiful here with regards to what God is really like. Verse number 6, And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Which one is it? Is he the God in the sanctuary? Or is he the God in heaven? Is he the God who is here with us? Or is he the God way out there in heaven? What's the answer? It's not a trick question. Yes is the right answer. Yes is the right answer. He is this transcendent God. He is high and lofty and separate from us. He is not dependent on any one of us at all. And yet, He is here with us in the sanctuary. He is near. His ears are ever ready to incline upon our call. He is here. And so, here we find God's divine transcendence. God, God's divine immanence. And of course, those are the two elements of God's omnipresence. He is present everywhere. The psalmist said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, that is, in the depths of the grave, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. And there is no better time to be more aware of the presence of God than when you are in a time of trouble. God is here. That is why it is so disconcerting to know people that you love who in time of tumults and tribulation turn away from God rather than go nearer to God. Our text tonight tells us that the king Jehoshaphat and the rest of Judah were so aware of God's presence, so much so, that as they're facing this great trouble, as they're facing this impending doom, this great army, they let the choir members go on the front lines of the battle ahead of their army. Look at it. They trusted the presence of God like that. What a display of looking upon the Lord for their victory. Sending the choir members ahead of the mighty soldiers because they knew that God was with them. Fourthly, why did, the, why did their eyes look upon the Lord? Well, because they remembered God's covenant to Abraham. 
their father. That's in verse 7. I want us to look at Isaiah real quick. Isaiah 41. We know that Abraham, their father, was specially chosen by God to save him and his descendants in the flesh as well as those who become related to Abraham by faith. God chose Abraham to bear the seed who will one day be the Messiah. God told Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is what they remembered. And even Isaiah here reiterates it for us. Look at verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. In times of tumult, Christian, you only need to remember God's covenant with you. One of God's covenants with us, believers, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Finally, why were their eyes fixed on the Lord? Because they believed in God's sovereignty. Verse number 6 of our text, look at that. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able 
to withstand thee. This is an amazing, amazing admission to the sovereignty of God. This is an amazing, amazing statement about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge of everything. God is not only in charge of everything, he is also in control of everything. The sovereignty of God. You know, I have studied the Bible now for over 30 years. I was around 10 years old when I started reading it. Um, in my mother's tongue, and almost immediately after that, in English, and then some Greek and Hebrew in Bible college and seminary, respectively. And I can honestly tell you that you can find that God is in charge of everything and God is in control of everything in just about every page of the Scripture. Turn to Isaiah 46. As you're turning there, I wanted to just give you some Scripture passages on this very encouraging doctrine of the sovereignty of God. As you're turning there to Isaiah 46, the psalmist reiterated it. He said, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. That's to say, in all of the universe. The newly converted pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, seven years of madness, but the Lord converted him. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What are you doing? None can do that. Why? Because he is in charge of everything and he is in control of everything. And then he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. God is in charge of everything. God is in in control of everything. And listen carefully, including the salvation of your souls. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, you don't have to turn there. The Bible tells us that we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In Ephesians 1, 11, God, listen to this, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is an astounding statement. Ephesians 3.11, God created all things 
according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 11.36 For from him Pastor Innes can probably elaborate on just those three words there. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The story has been written already. It's done. The book has been published already. It's done. God created all things according to His purpose, and He's doing that to give to Jesus Christ all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now let's read together Isaiah 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning. What? This is God who is in charge of everything. This is God who is in control of everything. And He's declaring the end of the world. The end of all things. The end of the universe. From the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. What supreme being is there who can make a claim like that? None other than the God of Abraham. None other than the God of King Jehoshaphat. Upon whom their eyes are fixed. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if this is the God whom you serve, it behooves us tonight to look to him as well during times of tumult. Let me give you some, some more applications for our consideration tonight. We live in tumultuous times. The current events of our world today cause us to wonder is this the end of the world as we know it? With the just war which Israel has declared on the Hamas terrorist group in Gaza and the possible entrance of many other Arab nations into the war. I just read uh, today an article that was given to me from somebody in the uh, Naval Surface um, Weapons Center here in uh, uh, Norco that Yemen, Yemen had fired missiles to Israel and our uh, military, our, our, um, our Navy, uh, intercepted them. P 
possible entrance of many other Arab nations into the war. What does this mean for the Christian? Where does this fit into our study of future events? Is this the beginning of the end? When will Jesus come back? And the simple answer to those questions is this. Jesus did not lie when he said, I'm coming back. Just like that t-shirt I was wearing in Louisville, Kentucky. Normal isn't coming back, but Jesus sure is. We just don't have a date on that. You will recall that Jesus, touching his human nature, did not know the time and day of his return. And so why would any man else put a time and date of Christ's return? We have seen in world history those religious fanatics who placed the time and date of Christ's return, and they were all wrong. <laughs> How many of you remember Harold Camping? Camping first predicted that the judgment day would occur on or about September 6, 1994. When it failed to occur, he revised the date to September 29th and then October 2nd. In 2005, Camping predicted the second coming of Christ to May 21st, 2011, whereupon the saved would be taken up to heaven in the rapture and that there would follow five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on earth with millions of people dying each day, culminating on October 21st, 2011 with the final destruction of the world. His prediction for May 21st, 2011 was wildly or widely reported in part because of the large-scale publicity campaign by uh, Family Radio, and it prompted ridicule from atheist organizations and rebuttals from Christian organizations as well. After May 21st passed without the predicted events, Camping said he believed that a spiritual judgment had occurred on that day and that the physical rapture would occur on October 21st, 2011, simultaneously with the final destruction of the universe by God. Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, said that 1914 would be the culmination of Armageddon. Well... Here we are now, more than 100 years past 1914. And so listen, no human being knows the time and day of Christ's return. But it doesn't diminish the fact that He is coming. Where do these current events fit into our eschatology? The study of future events, the study of last things. Where, where do these current events fit in our doctrine of last things. Well, you heard the words tonight. They fit exactly where God declares in Isaiah. He knows the ending from the very beginning of time. These fit exactly where Jesus said it in Matthew 24, 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And so my pastoral advice to all of us here is simply, 
we know that Jesus is coming. And so, let us then be mindful about what we should be doing as a church while we wait for his return. I'm not making this up. This is all in the word of God. What is the church supposed to do to make disciples of all ethnicities? To make disciples of Christ out of all ethnicities, starting here in Yucca Valley in Southern California. That is our job. These current events do not tell us that Christ will return before Christmas 2023. Current events, war in Gaza, rumors of war by the Arab nations, earthquake in Afghanistan, great flooding in Libya only tell us that Jesus did not lie when he said he's coming back. The signs of the time are part of the signs of the end times. And we do realize, I, I do realize, and if, if you're keen on, on observing uh, the, the society, we, we do realize, listen, all the technologies that we need or the world needs for all of the weird prophecies in Revelation, all of the technologies that will allow for the possibility of fulfilling all the prophecies in Revelation are already here. They're already here. We shouldn't be surprised of that. Why? Because God declared the end from the beginning. Repent and believe the gospel. If you have not truly repented of your sins, you need to do that now. Repent and believe the gospel. How is your attitude towards sin? Do you have a repentant attitude towards sin? Believe the gospel. Do you believe it now and tomorrow? You don't know. To believe the gospel truly is to keep on believing Jesus truly until the day you die, until he comes back. It is to continue to believe in Him. What did the disciples do when Jesus ascended into the clouds? 
you will recall that the angels told them, Men of Galilee, why are you standing up here looking up into the sky? The angels told them, This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. You know what the disciples did? They went home. They went into this building that had an upper room. They went up there, and you know what they did? They prayed. We should do that. And then the Holy Ghost came upon them, filled them all up, and they preached the gospel. And thousands of people got saved. Thousands of people got baptized. The same number of those that got saved got baptized. (laughs) Became members of the church. And you know what they did after that? They repeated the same pattern of discipleship over and over and over again. And you are one of their fruits. We're still waiting for the coming of Jesus. Stop gazing into the sky. Go up in the upper room, pray. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Boldly proclaim the gospel. Challenge people to repent and believe the good news. Baptize them. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever Jesus gave unto us. Let us not be troubled, Jesus said. Our text tonight, realize that the land that you will inherit one day will be far greater than this land. I know this is a beautiful Yucca Valley, I know that but it's even going to be more beautifuler than Yucca Valley. Remain here. Be faithful. Second, be reminded of God's goodness. It was the goodness of the Lord that he did not allow Israel to invade their cousins Moab and Ammon when they came out of the land of Egypt. It was the goodness of the Lord that brought you to repentance. Be aware of God's presence. God is here. Remember the new covenant. Many, many precious promises that have been given to the Christians in the Bible. Look them up. Immerse yourselves in them and be encouraged by them. And finally, live what you believe. If you really believe in the sovereignty of God, you will act like it.
when we got the news that Brittany needed a heart transplant. Our, our hearts sank. We got to the car in the parking lot outside of the hospital and just sobbed, <laughs> sobbed, cried out to the Lord. But you know what the Bible tells us? You have been chosen in Christ by God from before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in. Nothing, neither death nor life, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you exactly how it looked like. What does sovereignty of God really look like? We came home. We gathered our children in the living room. And we told them exactly what the doctor said. The doctor said, I'm sorry, but you need a heart transplant. If you don't get a heart transplant, you will die. We told, I told our children, 13 years of age and down. And the very first natural question, of course, was, why is this happening to us, Daddy? And here's where the test of sovereignty comes in. You know what I told our daughter? You know what I told our, our kids? I drew her to me, and I gave her a hug, and I said, God chose mommy to go through something like this and she is in good hands. Do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you really believe that he is in control of everything? Then act like it. In times of tumult, let your eyes be fixed on the Lord.